As we begin today, I just want to start with a pastoral word. Um, Over the last course of almost three years now that I've been here, we have begun to communicate well, I think. It's been really encouraging probably in the last couple of months about some of the things that uh, we've spoken about uh, privately or publicly that have come and the the scriptures themselves are landing on on this congregation in some really good ways that has made my heart happy and it takes a while to learn how to speak each other's language those of you who are married know this Uh, it is hard to learn how to talk with one another and learn what each other means and it's really sweet to see some of the fruit of our work together what i wanted to say before we get started really is is I always want to be faithful to preach the word, but I'm specifically, uh, I know all of you better at this point. And so I'm trying to work very hard to use the understanding that I have of you to apply it to the scripture. And so one of the things that I'm attempting to do is to slow down, (laughs) which is very hard for me, but I'm working really hard on that. And I'm trying to limit the amount of things that I cover which, as you know, is very hard for me. And so, (laughs) oh, yeah. (laughs) I I have a great defense attorney over there, my firstborn son. He, uh, uh, but this is an act of love for for all of us and uh, is something that you can bear with me as a young young preacher. But I have essentially... Two things that I would, uh, well, the last thing I would say is the reason you're having, I've only seen a two-part series in Acts chapter 7. We're in part 7 at this point, and we're going to have a part 8. I don't expect a part 9. However, uh, I'm going to let the cards fall as, as God has planned them to. And so what I intend to do today is just to cover two Two simple points. Um, this is your, your brief outline if you want it today. The sermon title, if you want it in two points, is Oracles Rejected. That's point one. And point two is Rivals Instated. Oracles Rejected, Rivals Instated. And there's one application for each of those. So Oracles Rejected. Uh, we'll, we'll have an application for that and rivals instated, and we'll have a, a, a longer application for that as well. That's where we're going today. <clears throat> and the first point that we have here is going to be in verse 42, oracles rejected. <clears throat> as you can see, this is about God's judgment. But as we, we read in the context from verse 38 and following, now, <clears throat> one more sort of pastoral word. As we go through different texts, some are happy and positive. At this point in the book of Acts, we are really at the climax of God's indictment against the covenant-breaking Jews, against Israel. And so my tone, I'm, I'm not angry or anything like that. I just have to make sure that you understand that um, the the tone of the scripture here has been and and will be intense. And so we need to take from it those sorts of things. So just, just hear that at first. And in the context, we had seen that in Exodus, there, there's a wide swath of time covered in a period of like two or three verses. Essentially from Exodus even from the crossing of the Red Sea all the way till Exodus 32. So you got like, you know, 20 chapters there. And in those, there is this consistent theme, which we see in the scriptures. That is, they received living oracles and they, they saw God himself. And yet so quickly, uh, time and time again, hardened their hearts, not unlike Pharaoh. They turned towards Egypt and they imaged forth Pharaoh himself who saw the signs of God and the wonders of God's glory and chose still yet to stiffen their necks and harden their hearts against the Lord. 
And so in this section, what we see here, well, let, let's, let's begin by reading as they turn to images and worship. They're rejoicing in the work of their hands. So what's God's response? That's verse 42. But God turned away. So they, they turned towards Egypt and God turns away from them and gave them over to worship. Uh, literally in order to worship the hosts of heaven as it is written in the book of prophets. And then there's the quotation from Amos. <clears throat> this is terrifying. This is a terrifying type of judgment. God in other cases in the past does other things, but here they had seen his words, they had seen his glorious wonders, and yet the judgment of God is to give them over, to give them to their sinful desires. And that's a terrifying thing. Romans 1, if you read Romans 1 and 2, most scholars recognize that the Jews in that day, uh, or even the Jewish Christians, might say to themselves uh, that they don't fit in the Romans 1 category, but it's striking how parallel Stephen's message here is with Romans 1. So you can turn there if you'd like. I just want to read a section uh, in verse 23 um, and 24 and 25. But essentially the summary from verse 18 is this is a a revelation of the wrath of God which falls on people in time. We can actually see God's wrath manifested towards unbelievers in that they are given over to their sin. They, they, uh, the Bible in verse 18 through the place that I want to summarize is essentially that men and women, all people from birth, know that there is a God by the things that God has made. God makes that evident to them. It's an inescapable truth, which gives somebody no reasonable objection to judgment. They have all, all of us, are from birth under the condemnation of sin. And then he says... What happens in our sinful rejection of God is though we know God, we become foolish. And it says in verse 23, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That is creation. And it says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In this sort of height of condemnation, what is said about specifically the wilderness generation, which they are supposed to interpret as not just a condemnation of those Jews back then, but them there in that very sentence. And they understand this. You continue reading the old stone Stephen by the end of this section. They understand that this is not just applying to those people in the past, but those people in the past are living in the present, as it were, in front of him. They have uh, rejected God and turned towards idols, and God's judgment is to silently grant They're straying from his explicit commands. They are straying from God by that way. He doesn't rain fire and brimstone in that type of judgment. Rather, he just says, have what you want. You can partake in your own sinful devices, which is is a terrifying judgment that, that God gives you over to your own sinful desires. We can see this in our culture in the month of of June that just passed. Yet we see that they had embraced the worship of false deities even in that time. 
the, the Bible calls this elementary spirits. If you want to go to Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, sometimes it's just called the elements. You can see that in Second Peter. But <clears throat> the ancient peoples in ancient times would attribute the stars of the heavens or even modern peoples today will worship the sun, have a sun god and, and his, his manifest king on the earth. They do that in Japan. So there is this uh, connection that they had made. They had worshipped turned and worshiped the stars and the things that God had made. This is what they had been given to. This type of judgment, just to make other connections, is the kind of thing that's related to the Proverbs. The the Proverbs says a, a father hates his children by withholding discipline from them. This is an act of hatred towards your family because love disciplines for godliness. God gives his word so that we might morph and form our ways around it. They, they had received the word, and they said no over and over again. And at a certain point, God said, all right, you don't want this? I'm not giving it to you. So they didn't have the chastisement of God's word. Psalm 95 famously says uh, about the wilderness generation uh, when he has fixed a judgment against them. The psalmist says, for 40 years, uh, this is God speaking, for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Thus, they perished in the wilderness. Only a couple of them and their children went in only because of God's promises. Now, what is the application here? Well, what we want to do is we want to recognize that Moses was the instrument whereby God brought his word to the people and and they resisted his faithful declaring of the word to the people and thus were judged. And so on the one hand, we recognize what God's judgment is. And so I think on the other hand, to apply this, maybe it's best to understand, well, what does the love of God do? Well, the love of God in the midst of the church is that the word would shine forth to the people. Um, But among us, that is, we are to recognize that God's kindness is demonstrated in giving us his word. Uh, This is true for commands and laws as well. That's what was given. Actually, just providentially, I'm in the Proverbs this week, and it says the people perish without a prophetic word. And he goes on to say that the, the blessed person is the one who keeps their way according to the law. That is, the word of the prophet is to declare God's law. We'll see that very clearly here in a minute. But the the prophet, in, in by and large, his function is not to speak about the future, though that is true from the Old Testament perspective and, and some from the New. But the by and large, the function of the prophet is to tell the word of God to the people, to tell them what the law said and what it means and how they've broken it. And in the same way, we've seen that in Acts, uh, we have seen that the spirit has been given so that we might bring the word of God to the people. We might bring the word of God to the world. It's a continuation of Jesus's ministry. So those familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism will know that we are given a portion of Christ's ministry as prophet, priest, and king. And, and in this way, the people, all people, You, me, and everybody who is a believer in Christ has been given a ministry of bringing God's word to his people. Now, I I am paid to do that, but nonetheless, we all are prophets, priests, and kings in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what what does a faithful and loving church do? Well, let's flesh this out. The We are the means. We're the Moses. We are the means by which we bring the word of rebuke, of correction, of encouragement, of teaching, of any of these things. We are to 
because we are loved by God, we exercise a certain level of, of imitation of God. We, we like a father, maybe for older men to younger men, or like a mother, older women to younger women, we, we exercise the ability to speak truth into another's life. We bring the word of God to one another. That, that is our job here in this body. <clears throat> so let me flesh this out even more. So I'll give you a verse, Ephesians four twenty nine. You should, in conversations with your brothers and sisters, uh, be bringing up this scripture, since we all fall seriously short of it. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Since we all sin in many ways, as James said, with our tongue, I could do a whole sermon on this point easily, but here are a few examples of conversations you should have. I notice, brother or sister, that your language is a bit loose these days. Let us not speak world, words that are, that are filthy adjectives like, like the world. Let's, let's have a, a gracious speech that gives grace to the people of God and the world, um, you could say, uh, for, for maybe bitter or critical or um, words that would fit maybe in that category, you can say, sister, does that, does that bring grace to anybody? So that gives God's grace to people. <clears throat> what is your goal in saying that? Those are some ways to address one another if we're bringing the word of God to each other. This is what the word says. This is how we apply it. Okay, how about in your fellowship? You're mingling, you're getting to know what's happening in somebody's life. And you say, you say for the husbands, you might ask, how are you doing in, in washing your wife with the water of the word? How are, you, how are you doing? Have you gotten a rhythm of family worship as the elders have exhorted us for months on end? Have you done that yet? Where are you at with that? How can I help you? Wives, maybe you'll ask, How's your submission to your husband? What, what's that like these days? <clears throat> How about we all are counselors, I believe, even informally. Here's a difficult one because we live in a victim culture. And some of you will understand when I say this. If someone tells you about how somebody else in the church hurt them. And a common response in our day is just to validate feelings. Uh, rather, you should say, well, God has forgiven them. You should forgive them. You need to go and reconcile and be at peace with them as far as it depends on you. We need to be having these sorts of things. Otherwise, I've been into many churches that have a culture of, of walking on eggshells where people are actually scared and avoid necessary conversations with one another because they don't want to offend each other as though sin is not going to be here and needs to be ongoing forgiven or something like that. We need to be striving in Christ's likeness and being like a prophet and saying the hard things to each other. We have that ministry for one another. We are, we've literally been given to build up the body of Christ. That's not the pastor's job primarily, only. It's actually your job. So if you come to service or you're inviting people over and, and you should think I'm putting on a prophetic mantle now. I actually have responsibilities given to me from Christ. I have a duty to speak what I understand about God to these brothers and sisters. And as we do that, you say, well, I mess up. Yeah. Some of you don't know how to handle the sword of the spear very well. You might cut your brother's arm off. I, I hope you don't do that. Uh, but uh, must the other brother or sister listen? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yep, you must listen. And must we say sorry when we do it wrong? Sure, absolutely. But let us not be like the people of Israel who when there's, all of them are going into sin, you remember in the wilderness generation, there was Joshua and Caleb and they, they brought back, <clears throat> they're the two with the, the good report, right? They they are the only two out of the others who went, yeah, God said it's a good land, it's really good, but those giants are gonna eat us up and then we're gonna die. And God brought us out here to destroy us and stuff like that. And the other two, what did they do? 
they exercised that same office. They said, no, God's promises. And, and they exhorted the people in the right way. <clears throat> this is the same thing that we've, same place that we find ourselves, that we have the ministry of Christ, that is to speak the word of God to one another, that we will end up in various different times and ways and relationships and all sorts of other ways that we're in sin in some way and need the word of God. You are the means of God's grace coming to your brother and sister or the means by where, which they're helped in their hardness against God. Don't, don't be that for your brother and sister. Be the means of grace to them. So this is the first point in application. Oracles rejected. We must embrace the living oracles of God, even the law of God for one another. And secondly, we have whatever I term this second one, uh, idols or rivals instated. This is verse, we'll read 42 again, but verse 43 and 44. It says these words, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you an exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern. So this, at first, of course, proves their idolatry. Obviously, it's seen in the scriptures, but this is the word of the prophets. That's, they are testifying to this. So this is quoted from Amos 5, 25 through 27. And you can think of the prophet's role as a, a covenant lawyer, as it were. They bring covenant um, uh, lawsuits against God's people. Covenant lawsuits is a good way to think about what the prophets do. They function as a prosecuting attorney against God's people when they've broken God's commandments. They said, you have violated the law, and therefore, if you don't repent, you will pay. That is the law of God to the people. That's what the prophets were sent to do. <clears throat> and because of this particular text, we have to, this isn't a this is kind of like a side note, kind of not. So in our text, we come across a difference. So if you went and you went, okay, here's Amos 5. You looked in your cross-reference 25 through 27, and you read it here, and then you go back in your Old Testament, and you read it there, they're going to read differently. They're going to read differently. So we have entered into a place where I need to address something called Textual criticism. This is very important. Don't tune out. Sometimes it's dry for people. I, I will make it very clear, hopefully. Stephen and the New Testament authors, by and large, quote a translation of the Old Testament scriptures. So Amos, when he was writing back in the day and preaching, it was in Hebrew. That's what is in the original manuscripts. That is what God inspired. Yet by the time the New Testament rolls around, before that period, there are a couple different translations. There are, there are different versions of the Old Testament in Hebrew. That's what we would experience. But the, by and large, what the New Testament authors quote is called, some people call it the Septuagint, some people call it the Septuagint. But it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew, okay? And so what is the language of the New Testament? Well, it's Greek. What is the common language of the day? Well, it's Greek. So they, by and large, quote, Greek Old Testament, okay? So originals Hebrew, translation that's quoted often in the New Testament is in Greek. And this can pose problems sometimes because sometimes there's differences, and that is something that is very difficult for us. Let me just tell you what the answer is, and then I want to say another word about it. First, the answer is that the Hebrew, your Hebrew Bible, which is, which is 
all your English translations, every single one of them, by and large, translate from directly from the Hebrew text. They, they don't make these emendations, okay? So what needs to happen in the Hebrew text is it to, there's vowel pointings. I don't know if you've ever seen it. There's vowels, pointings, and stuff. So it's the same letters. Like if you're thinking about the word dog in English, the same letters are there. There's just different pointings, which actually help you pronounce. Those technically aren't original. And so what needs to happen is a revocalization, slightly different pointings, which change the word that's used. Instead of sikat, it's sikat, or something like that. It's U and A is flipped, essentially, in how we would pronounce that, which changes the, the word from a name, sikat, to... Which is, a, which is the name of a god, to tent or tabernacle. That's the word. So the New Testament and under inspiration, Stephen actually quotes what would be a, a textual variant, as it were, to make his point, which is significant. That means he says that the word should be tent. So in our English translation, that's what should be there. It's not there. That's why I have to explain this to you. Now, this throws people off a lot because we're like, oh, I thought every word of God is inspired. Yes, it is. But you and I are modern people. I don't know if you know this. We're moderns. We actually live after the printing press. We live after the time where photocopiers existed. I don't know if you know that that hasn't always existed. (laughs) If you wanted a book, a poem, Anything, it would cost you lots of money and you would have to hand copy it or pay somebody to do it. That is every single book that's ever existed, even after the printing press, because there's different versions. And so there would be variations in what we have. So those are slight. They're really tiny. Sometimes they make no difference. And most of the time in the scriptures, I can just gloss over those but because I can't even explain the difference to you. It's, it's differences that only make sense to a, a Greek-speaking person at the time or a Hebrew-speaking person at the time. But there are places where there's an actual difference in what your English text will read and what, you know, from the New Testament to the Old Testament. And so we have to point those out. You should know that it, it doesn't pose any problems Um, And the only reason it poses problems for us is mainly due to ignorance. I pray and I I share this with you so that you wouldn't be ignorant anymore. Because people like a Bart Ehrman, if you've ever heard of him, they they literally, he's an apostate from Christianity. He has denied the faith and he's walked away from from Christ. He's, He's in a serious state of rebellion. Yet he's very, he's very scholarly, he's very intelligent, he's very smart, but he knows that Christians and some pastors are scared to cover this topic. Well, number one is some people don't believe in election, <laughs> and so they're scared that you'll lose your faith. Well, I'm not scared about that. I think this is the means by which your faith has grown, in fact. Uh, the elect will always persevere. I'm not, I'm not worried about any of that. But what I do want you to understand is that I don't want your ignorance to be used against you. I want you to start to know this so you can't have that area that seems scary to you be undermined and undermine your faith and cause you, even if you're not to walk away from Christ, to doubt the the sufficiency and the, the truthfulness. Jesus was right when he said, not a jot or tittle, the vowel pointings in the Hebrew text, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And this, there's a lot. There's, there's stuff in Isaiah that we'll get to next week. There's stuff that still yet to be accomplished in the scriptures. The, these things are firm. They're fixed. Every word of God is true. And so I don't want you to be ignorant. And I don't want you to be lied to. God decided, you know, whether we like it or not, he didn't put the original he didn't collate all the manuscripts, put it in one place under uh, unbreakable glass uh, to be copied. Uh, he, he did not preserve his word in a time capsule that way. No, God is actually 
very powerful and he can ordain that his word is preserved through ordinary people like us in the early centuries. Well, either the Old Testament, which is copying is a little bit different there than the New Testament period where average Joes like you and me, lots of times just copying down the scriptures so that our church would have a copy of them. And God did not, it's well said that he didn't strike anybody dead when they, they accidentally put an A instead of an E. He has preserved his word through normal historical processes, but that's the same way that God saves you. Normal historic occurrences and supernaturally being part of your life in the spirit through his word and through other Christians. This is normal for our experience as Christians and for the way the world works. And so we we need to understand that there are places and times where I'll have to bring up textual critical issues. It's important because if you don't know it, uh, what can be said of you is, well, Jesus said, and you quote that and you're like, well, how do you know Jesus said that when there is some doubt about this and that? You know, there's manuscripts that are different. They don't all read the same. And people use your ignorance to try to undermine your faith and undermine the words of Jesus. So why is this so important? Well, I've already told you why it's important here, but let me say as it relates to the message, what in the message is important? Well, there's two words. One of them is tent or tabernacle. This is how you should understand it. Tent or tabernacle. And the second one is a little bit harder to see, but I want to show you both because there is an intentional parallel between the two and it gets to the heart of Stephen's message. So in verse, in verse 30, or excuse me, 43, after saying, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices? He says, you took up the tent, there's our word, of Moloch, the star of your God, Rephon. And then in verse 44, he says, as a parallel, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he, that is Christ, as we saw, directed him to make it according to the pattern. So first, there is the tent of witness, and then there is the tent of Moloch. These things are parallel, and we'll bring that out in a second. But the second thing, and this is a little bit harder to see because you're not looking at the Greek, but I've called this thing up bunches of times. Pattern, types, shadows. The, the word here literally, tupos, is translated two different ways. It, it, it is image in verse 43, the image, the images that you made to worship. And Moses in verse 44 is directed according to the image, the pattern of the tabernacle that he saw. So what is, what is the point that's being brought out? <clears throat> and I want to give you a category that I think will be helpful And there's a phrase that I've heard in conjunction with it. What's the problem that he's calling out with the people? The phrase that I want you to remember is not so much this, but that. Not so much this, but that. When you hear the quotation of Amos, you should hear the, the category is they're doing something partially wrong or partially right and partially wrong, and what Stephen wants to call out is the wrong thing. It's the same category that you use when you're arguing with your spouse. It's not about what you said, it's how you said it. (laughs) Not so much this, but that. And here, as it relates to Israel, even those who are standing in front of them, it's not so much that they weren't offering sacrifices according to the law. They were. But rather, the issue is that, namely, that they had not put away their false gods. You see, they had set up, God had given them a tent as a pattern. God had given them this image, this tabernacle. But they, not being satisfied with it, set up their own image. 
they set up a different tent to a false god. They set up rival gods against the Lord. So that's the point of his quotation. He wants to say that you did not abandon the ways of Egypt. You brought them along. You did not listen to the first, the second, the third, and the fourth commandment. You honored another God. You did not put it away. You may have thought you were honoring the Lord, but you did not. You did not toss away your other gods. You set them before the Lord. And so they are accused of of having rival gods, a different tent, a different image. Now we'll get into the fullness of that because the the rest of the scripture here is about the the tabernacle and stuff, and we don't have time to get into it today. So this will be an extended application. Just in passing, for next week, you should read Isaiah 64 through 66. Because he quotes 66.1, and you should have it all in your mind. But now, let us apply this. No rival gods. So what they had broken is the first, the second, the third, and the fourth commandment. We call that the first table of the law. Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make any graven images or bow down to them. Number three, you shall... Not use the Lord's name, that is anything that he's used to make himself known in vain or living not according to that. Number four is honor his day, keep it holy, which is for us Sunday, the Christian Sabbath. Now, this means that Christians are to understand that God forbids us to consider anything of equal authority to him. That's what's happening here. He is the Lord. We, or he requires us to elevate him and consider him in our hearts and minds as our sole authority. The the highest level, in other words, of our hearts as an authority is to be reserved for him. In other words, nobody... Nothing, whether person, place, thing, ideology, is to have no equal claim to us. This is why the Apostle Paul will call us servants or slaves of God. He is our master. We are his servants. And we should understand that Jesus taught us this. In a famous way, according to money. Money is a, a thing, but there's something that goes along with it. Jesus said, for those who would be tempted to elevate money to a godlike level, he says, no one can serve two masters. Hear that? No one can serve two masters. Either, excuse me, I lost my quotation here. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. That's what had happened. They had two authorities, Moloch and Yahweh. And they actually went through this process that happens even to us. That is, masters, the things that we functionally have as a master, make demands on us. They tell us, do this, don't do that. And when they conflict, these masters disagree. You have to, it's the nature of the thing, can't do it any other way. There's no third option here. Uh, You have to prioritize one above the other. You have to say, I will serve this master or serve this one. I'm going to hate this one, that is to functionally disobey, or I'm going to love them. I'm going to obey them, listen to them, believe them. Take them at their word and do what they say. I'm going to submit to them. If you want a thorough thorough explanation of this further, Romans chapter 6 is a good place to go. But you all recognize that money doesn't talk, doesn't actually say stuff in in that way. How does it then make demands on you? If an idol doesn't have any existence, Molech is a is a is a demonic god. 
we could talk about it in that way. How, how does an idol exert force on you? How, how does it rival God? How do you allow that thing to be set up in your life? We're talking about functional idolatry in our lives that need to be rooted out. <clears throat> how do we uh, root out gods and how do they exert pressure on us and tell us to worship and serve them? <clears throat> well, I want to just first identify that the first four commandments, the first four commandments, actually, where you violate those, those would tell you, you have an idol functioning. So <clears throat> it's okay to miss a Lord's day. Okay, of course, of course, there's, there's other things that God providentially brings up. But if you make it the course of your action to regularly miss because you have so many other more important things to do, that is functioning as an idol in your life, whatever that thing is. The Lord's day is the Lord's. He owns it. And so he's the the Lord of it. He tells you what to do as a Christian on it. Don't make it a habit of missing the Lord's day. Even if you're out of town, you should go find a church that you can worship at if, you, if it's a possibility. You should make it the priority in your life. Third commandment. Well, we could run through all of these. Okay, You should, where you violate those, not saying that there's not some flexibility here, of course, because God gives what, what you would call providential hindrances and stuff like that, um, and other obligations so that if your ox falls in a hole on that day, <laughs> although you might be dedicated not to work, you, you, you're going to pull that ox out because that day is meant for those sorts of purposes as Jesus taught. Okay. So <clears throat> what, what is an idol? What is it? How do you serve it? We attach and, and how does it exert force? If it's, if it's, if it's a phone, although it, it beeps at you, Right? It'll beep at you. But let's say it just it just sits there, doesn't do anything. How does it exert force on you and talk to you and and become an idol in your in your life? It is by me or you attaching value and honoring that thing with your resources. Let me give you examples. We when we honor, worship something, we sacrifice to it. That is, we give our time, we give our energy, we give our money to serve that thing. We believe what they promise. There are things that are attached to it that stand forth as promises, though they might not tell us this. They, they say, I am going to give you pleasure. I'm going to give you joy. I'm going to give you fulfillment. And so we put our efforts into pleasing them, even to the exclusion or rather than pleasing God in devotion to him. It's an exchange of one for the other. Okay, that's how we do that. Now, I'm going to I could. I should probably do sermons on this more, but I'm going to give you an example of something that is easy to see uh, for all of us. Even if you've not called it this in the past, uh, I'm commending it to you. Something that's easy to see that has become an idol. And even if you, even if you're a worldly person, uh, you can see the devastating effects of the idolatry. It's really easy to see somebody's given into something sinfully in this category. And so I'm using it in this, but I want you to be able to take this beyond. So I'm, I'm going to try to do so in a way that <clears throat> you can apply it to anything that might actually exist in your life or might exist in other people's lives so as to speak the word of God to them. So I'm going to use, use drugs because they bring harm to us. It's really easy to see when somebody's aged a bunch and is a a complete wreck of a person and is destroying their body and their health and and maybe even going to die because they've abused the substance. It's really easy to see the impact of that idol on them. Whereas, let's say, for example, the Pharisees in their day, it it was really harder to see for many 
what sort of idolatry they had, though Jesus calls it out all the time. They, they had an appearance even of godliness. So their, their idolatry looked like it could be respectable. Okay? So those are harder. I'm not, I'm not going to do that because I think the easy case will help you understand <clears throat> idols and not becoming like Israel here, where we set something or allow anything to rival God in our own hearts and minds. So if somebody idolizes drugs because they think it will bring them joy or maybe relief from pain, they will pay lots of money to get it. They will spend lots of time in hiding trying to use it to get it for all that it's worth. They will give lots of energy to fabricate stories so that you don't know exactly what's wrong in their life right now, even though you you see something's going on that's bad. People don't catch on. You you worship it. You serve it with all of your, your resources, both that you can give physically or monetarily, <clears throat> and you will pursue it. People who are caught in this, we usually call this addiction. However, it's just plain old idolatry, that's what it is, is where we decide to pursue it even at the expense of what God demands of us. We, we, we have it as a rival God and, and functionally serve the one, and so we supplant the other. And so what God says, if we prioritize the idols, we reject the one for the sake of the other because we can't serve them equally. They, they make different demands on us. and We have to choose whom we will serve this day. So God, God's commandment, one very simple one, is drunkenness. Now, obviously, in that day, they would have applied it to idolatry or, or to, uh, well, they would have done that too. <laughs> but drunkenness would have been applied to alcohol. This is true, but we do believe the Bible is sufficient. So that means that drunkenness is the universal category that God has given us for substance abuse of any kind, whether somebody's on pills or whatever, it is the category that we, unless we want to say that God has nothing to say about those things, you have to have some way of saying, well, the sufficiency of scripture addressed is this. So even unbelievers recognize this. We're driving down the highway uh, the other day by DeGarmo Park, and the quotation was very catchy, get high, get a DUI. That is, get intoxicated through any substance, doesn't matter what it is, we might call it high, that's good old-fashioned biblical drunkenness. If you want a whole chapter or, or a large swath of stuff, go read Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. It gives you lots of the effects of these things. So what I want to do here is to, I'll I'll use that idol, but I want to um, uh, impersonate the idol so that you might understand the lies it tells, and you might also transparently apply this to your own life beyond. So the idol of, of a substance will say, I will give you relief if you... If you drink me, if you shoot me, if you inhale me to the point of drunkenness, just get a little, get tipsy. I make my servants most happy. No side effects. <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. Don't, wor- don't worry about those things. Just focus on me now. Serve me now. You'll be happy for it. Don't spend time praying for relief. Ah. What, what kind of peace could God give to you? Psh, I give instant relief right now. Don't put effort to get counsel from the Bible or from, from people. The, the answer can't be found in Scripture. That's, that's out of date. It's out, out of, it should be out of print. It's, it's old. It's antiquated. It, you know, God dealt with some of those old subjects he didn't really foresee this being a problem in the future. You need modern guides. You need to go into Barnes and Noble, find a self-help book on addictions. You need to go, you need to go uh, spend new time, quality you time. That's what's wrong. 
No. Don't value what God's word says brings relief. Don't value what God's word says brings joy. It, it addresses this all over the pages of scripture, by the way. He, you know, he's a master with too many responsibilities. He's going to make you do all this stuff. All you got to do is go to the store and buy me. And then, and then you have all the things that you want. None of that scripture stuff. Serve me. And here's, here's, the real, here's the real thing that I want you to take away. Is it says, believe my promises are better. That's what idols say to you. God can give you it and I can give you it, but my promises are better. And everybody knows that those things are so temporary and so fleeting. They, uh, no idol is a good master. He only puts you into further bondage to him. He does not give you freedom. He doesn't give you lasting joy. That idol does not give you anything comparable to God. I'll steal a phrase from Jeff Durbin. It's a, it's a bootleg pleasure. It, it is something that is knockoff and you know, break. It's a McDonald's toy in two minutes. It is not worth it at all. But idols want to act as though what they can give to you is just as valuable or better. And so you serve them. I hope, I hope this has helped you to be able to identify those things that maybe want to make themselves rivals or you might allow too much room into your heart. But... Um, just know that the way to kill an idol is, this, is the same way to kill any sin. It's in the category of sin, so you deal with it like a sin. Jesus doesn't put people in different categories and give them different instructions. He actually gives us one instruction. That is, we are to, to confess those things that have become idols as a sin. I sinned against you, God. And you turn to the Lord for forgiveness, knowing that, that you need his word on the matter. Turning to God and say, well, what should I believe? What should I pursue? What will give me joy? What do you promise me in your word? I want that. And you obey his commands and you choose to believe uh, a scripture like Psalm 16. He is the greatest pleasure. In his presence, there's fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So anything that would offer something different, the way to not serve the idol is to say, well, God says this. And he's told me, I can't get that thing in the way you want me to get it. I, I can do it. <clears throat> Let's say it's a, for example, it, it is a, it's a substance that would be appropriate to use, like alcohol. I can get it in the right way. God says it's to be used this way, and you can embrace it that way. Whereas the idol tells you to use it in a way that is intentionally sinful, explicitly wrong. And you who have been freed by the power of Christ are no slave to any substance. You are a slave to Christ. You have no greater master. And so any, any idol that would want to destroy you, kill it. Confess that as sin, even desiring to abuse that thing and seek the fullness of joy that is in Christ. Now, <clears throat> I'm gonna end my sermon here. I don't wanna pray for the elements and then, and then we can 